Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, this, this world is, is too much for us right now. It, it's just too much for us to handle. We are beyond our capacity, and you know and you knew that from the beginning that a knowledge of good and evil and an experience of evil things would be too much for us, and we're, we're beyond what we can handle. Life has been turned upside down by this pandemic, and unemployment and financial uncertainty is sweeping our nation. Thousands have been sick and lost lives, and more are stuck in a cycle of fear and anxiety that makes it so the way that they're living life is no life at all. And so we pray and plead with you that you would that you would heal us, that you would bring healing to our world and our nation and our city, that you would restore us. And yet... We know that we don't deserve to be restored. I'm heartbroken today. The voice of another one of our brother's blood cries out from the ground. So forgive us. Would you comfort the family of Ahmad Arbery and his friends? Lord, we are an unjust people whose historic sin has cast a long shadow that continues to be perpetuated and carried out before our eyes. Would you forgive us for hating those who bear your image? Would you bring justice and righteousness to bear on the wicked that kill and destroy and dehumanize your people? And would you give us the eyes to see and a heart that breaks to know that we are our brother's keepers, our sister's keepers. So we cry out, come Lord Jesus and make this place right. And Father, today is, even as we celebrate Mother's Day, my heart is heavy for those for whom this is a hard holiday and and a reminder of a broken or fissured relationship with their mom, or a reminder of a mom they've lost, or a reminder of their desire to be a mom. And so I pray that you would be the God of comfort to those who need comfort today, and yet also help us to celebrate what is so good in the gifts that you've given us. And so, Father, today with the weariness and anxiety and sorrow and and head-splitting tension that I've carried with me into this place, some of it because of the news around me, some of it because of the battle within me. Uh, we turn together to the one place that can give us hope and comfort, and so we open your word together today, Father. And we come expectantly that you would speak to us, that your spirit would move to soften our hard hearts, that, your, that Christ would be glorified in this church and in our city and throughout this nation and in this world that you have made. Give your people a voice to speak up, to proclaim the goodness of Christ and the brokenness of sin. 
And so we turn together to your word today, Father. Would you help us? Amen. Amen. Well, church, we are continuing today in our study in the book of Romans. And we've been, it's been difficult topics for the entire series so far that we started in January, just tough things looking into the reality of the human condition and sin and our propensity for sin and that we are under the power and reign of sin. We've been looking at at that we're either in Adam or in Christ, and there's been glimmers of hope of God's grace along the way, but, but we've covered some tough ground together. And today we come to Romans chapter 8, and everything begins to change. Um, I don't know if you remember when you were a kid. I'm sure you remember. Everybody knows this. Um, but I can remember saying this as a kid and being on the playground and having you know, kids make fun of you. And I used to get made fun of when I was a kid because I had um, a patch of white hair on my neck. And uh, it sounds weird, I know, but this is true. Now I have a beard and I have to shave my neck. But I had a patch of white hair on my neck, nowhere else. And it was like the, this little patch of peach fuzz. And when your name is Bill and they call you Billy at school and you have a patch of white hair on your neck, there is an immediate way. I mean, I, it is Billy Goat. And I was called Billy Goat, and it still to this day like hangs over me. And I remember it. And I can remember... My mom telling me, like, you just need to have more confidence, and you should throw it back at them. And so one day, I actually bawed at the kids, <laughs> and that made it worse. It did, not, it, did not, it did not help in the least. And I went home that day, and I was in tears, and my dad said, what, you're worried about that? Come here. And he took me into the bathroom and shaved my neck, and I came out, and my mom cried. Um, and so, um, but, it's, but I can remember um, that... I can remember as a kid saying, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words that never hurt me. That is a lie. That is the dumbest playground saying, maybe of them all. What a dumb thing to say, because words stick with us. Words carry the power of life and death. The fights I got into in the playground, I don't remember as clearly as the things that people said to me as a kid. And it's not just as a kid. There are things, that, times in my life that, that I have been wounded deeply and by people that I trust and people that are close to me and people that I thought cared for me and people that I worked alongside and that we loved Jesus and were pursuing, I thought, the same mission together, arm in arm, that turned. And, you know, as the psalm, as David says in the Psalms, that their, their words were smoothly like butter, but their tongues were swords, and, and it, was, it was a trap that was laid, and, and some of the things that have been spoken over, with, over me in my life have caused some of the most difficult and deep anguish within my soul. It still, it still hurts. There are certain topics that if they come up, or even seasons of the year, when, when certain times of the year pass by, that that those wounds, the scars, it's, uh, the wounds have closed, but those scars are still tender. That if you push on it, it hurts. And it's hard for me not to react. And there are conversations and moments that play like tape recordings in my head, and I can't get rid of them to the point where even when I get out of them in my waking hours, it'll invade my dreams. And they come out of nowhere, and they strike hard, and they strike deep. And I think in some way, because no matter what somebody criticizes you for, no matter what somebody speaks over you, there's always going to be at least a grain of truth to it. And that's what makes it sting most deeply. 
And I know that. I, see, I know the, the most condemning voice in my head is usually my own. I know that I sin. I know that I fail. I know that I mess up. And those things get recited over me. And, and so when we were reading Romans 7 last week, and it comes to its climax with Paul saying, saying, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I can feel that cry in my own heart so often. Who's going to deliver me? What hope could I possibly have? What is it, what is possible for God, what can God do for a sinner like me who, who doesn't deserve anything, who fights hard but fails over and over and over again, who, who feels condemnation and shame lurking around every corner and hears voices that reinforce it all? And I think Romans 8 has answers for us. There's hope for us. We got a glimmer of it last week that Paul cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then immediately says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And immediately he doesn't go into like, why are you thanking God after that statement? But we also need to remember that Paul wrote this letter and there wasn't a chapter break between seven and eight. So he goes right into chapter eight, what we call chapter eight, and immediately begins to unpack for us one of the most glorious texts in the whole of God's word. Now, all of God's word is inspired, inerrant, his truth for us. It's all vital, it's all important. But there are some chapters that stand above it to make the rest of it come clear to us and for, for, to make it all make sense. And so we are going to spend, the plan is for us to spend the next eight weeks in Romans 8 together. We're going to slow things down a little bit because we need to dig in deeply here. But today we see that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the big idea. And today we will cover Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, which say this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so as we, as we read this, right off the top, we can see that it, be, it has the word therefore in it. Well, Redemption Hill, we know when you see the word therefore, you always need to stop and see what it's there for. This is a connecting word. It shows us that this connects back to what was immediately said preceding it. So Paul cried out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So he's saying he has this struggle. Chapter 7 lays out the battle that everybody faces. Every Christian, every saint throughout history has had this internal battle that our flesh does what we don't want to do. We can't do the things we want to do. We have this war within us, and it feels like it's always fighting. And so with our minds, we serve God, but in our flesh, our, we still fall into sin and still serve sin. And so he says, in light of all of that, that he says immediately here, there is no condemnation. None. And so this is showing us, it's, it's building off of the argument that's been built for chapters through Romans. Back in chapter 5, when Paul said to us, listen, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
Back in chapter 6, when he said, listen, we don't serve the law. We're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. Chapter 6, we said, you're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness in Christ. Those are the two options for us. That in chapter 7, we don't serve God, in, in verse 6, in, in the old letter of the law, but now in the newness of the Spirit. And so he's been building these arguments, saying, in chapter 7, the law cannot save us. You remember what he said, that, that it, you know, the, the law, the, the, its commandment, don't covet, all that did for him was show him that coveting was a thing. All of a sudden, he thought, oh, covet, now I can covet. That's a matter of the heart. This is where we talked about that, that our own hearts are so bent that as soon as we hear a command, it, our sin within us, our rebellion within us, so the, the toxicity of our own hearts will, will push us to, to push against whatever we're told, even when it's right and good. And so we're caught in this lifelong struggle of the sin within us and the weight of condemnation constantly over us. And this is why I love the Bible. Because I don't want to import my experience on top of it, but this describes my experience with clarity that I couldn't come to otherwise. Why do we carry a sense of condemnation? Well, because we're in a constant fight and we constantly fall short. So of course we feel a sense of condemnation. We, if, we, if we really think about our lives and, and hold them up in a lens up to the glory of God's holiness and goodness, of course we'll fall in the same place Paul does in saying, wretched man that I am, who will possibly deliver me? And so Romans 8 bursts into the letter with an explosion of grace and love, and it is saturated with language of the Holy Spirit. And this is in, in a unique way, even throughout the, the New Testament. And so the first seven chapters of Romans, what we've covered so far in our study, spirit, the word spirit is mentioned five times in those seven chapters. Chapters 9 to 16, the rest of the book after this chapter, there are eight times that the spirit is mentioned. Romans 8, he uses the word spirit 21 times in one chapter, more than any other chapter in the New Testament. And so the answer to our weakness and our failure is that we need the spirit of God to work transformation in our lives. That's the only hope we have. And so we're going to see that develop in the coming weeks, that, that our own strength of will can't change us, that, that more rules won't change us. Getting, getting the rules nailed down properly won't change us. Getting our beliefs and thoughts nailed down won't change us. You can get tough on your sinful impulses, and you should work toward holiness, but it won't change your heart. Ray Ortland said of this verse, the reason grace succeeds where law fails is that while law is empowered by our own good intentions, grace is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, I need to be honest here. In one of the lowest points of my life, um, the, Ray and Janny spent some time with Alyssa and I and um, it breathed life and courage into us. And Ray has written a, a small book that's an exposition of this one chapter, Romans 8, called Supernatural Living for Natural People. And I am going to borrow very heavily from Pastor Ray Orland throughout these, as, as we're in this chapter. And so if you hear anything good, it's probably from Ray, not from me. And if you, are, if you wonder if something I said was something original, just ask me. But as a disclaimer, Ray's writing and his, my time with him has shaped so much of my perspective on grace 
and understanding this chapter in particular. And so I owe a ton to him. Um, if it's not from Ray, it's probably from like Lloyd-Jones or Spurgeon, the usual people that you see on the screen when I preach. <laughs> so with that, let's slow down and press in together. Let's begin where it starts. There's no condemnation. We, we saw all through the first chapters of Romans that our justification, our standing before God, is given to us. So no condemnation is our big idea today. That's the big theme. Everything else will come under that. So we saw in the first few chapters of Romans, our first four to seven, that our justification, our right standing before God, is given to us by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so the idea of what happened in Christ is that our sin was credited to him, imputed to him, and he credits us his righteousness on the cross. That's a doctrine of double imputation, and it changes our standing, that we, are no longer sta- we no longer stand condemned by our own sin, but we stand firmly in the righteousness of Christ, in the courtroom of, God's, of, of the law, and of God's courtroom. And, and, but that justification is just the beginning, because that expands into everything else. And so here, I want you to notice a few things about the way that this verse starts in in verse 1. First, notice that this is definitive. There's no argument here. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Period. That is the statement. It's present tense. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this is the present reality, ongoing right now. And in the Greek in this verse, there's not even a to-be verb, so it's not even there is. In the Greek text, it simply says, therefore now no condemnation. It, it's startling how abrupt it is in a change in Paul's argument. And, and here it's, it's clear, and we need to be careful to allow that statement to stand without changing it or adapting it or adding to it, or certainly for, uh, without taking away from it. I, and I think we have a tendency, I know we have a tendency to add to this concept because it makes us uncomfortable because we don't know how to deal with grace. But here he's saying there's no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ Jesus. Our impulse actually comes out in this, our impulse to add to the gospel. The old King James version um, has a different translation of Romans 8.1. And so if you're reading in the old King James today, um, it's possible at Redemption Hill that would be rare for our church, but some of you may be reading from that text today. The old King James is an older translation that was built off manuscripts that now we have better manuscript evidence, and this is one place where additions were made that the oldest and best manuscript evidence we have for the book of Romans doesn't include part of what the KJV has for this verse. The King James here reads, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus... Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Why? Well, the ESV doesn't have that. And again, the best textual evidence doesn't support that second part. So how did it ever get in there? Often when you see these kinds of textual variants that sometimes show up in translations, not very often, but when they do, especially when you go back Old King James versus modern day translations, one of the issues that happens is that in general, I can remember when I was working in Greek classes, that they taught us that often if there's a discrepancy on a particular passage, that the shortest version is usually the most accurate. The reason is because scribes, as they copied by hand the manuscripts of the Bible, 
would be painstaking and not missing a letter or a word. And if they did, they would have to throw out everything they'd done on the scrolls or parchments they were working on. And so they would never take away from, but there were times when they might add two things just because they felt like it helped things to be more understandable. And so the language that the KJV inserts here, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, that sums up some concepts that come in in later verses in Romans 8, but it, sum, but it brings it into a section that it doesn't belong, and so it makes it a condition of us having no condemnation rather than a characteristic of those who are walking in the spirit. The reason this is important, and the reason I'm going into textual criticism right now, is because it is not just to dog on the KJV. If you like the King James, God bless you. But the reason I bring this up is because I think we can relate to this scribe, whoever it is, that inserted the second part of 8.1. That I think he was hedging his bets the same way we do. I think he read this and thought, "I I don't know, Paul. I mean, I, there's no condemnation as, as long as you're walking in the Spirit. Like, but it's a corruption of the text. And not just a corruption of the text. That corruption of this text is a corruption of the gospel. Because it's making it a condition that if you are not walking in accordance to the... Or if you, if you begin to walk after the flesh and not with the Spirit, that all of a sudden you are in condemnation. And so there is no condition here. But I think the reason I bring this up too is because most of us functionally live this way. That we hear you're saved by God's grace alone. It's given to you and it changes you and transforms you and his spirit will work within you. And we get impatient and we look at the battle within us in our own lives and we cry out, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched woman I am. Who will possibly save me? And then we begin to say, all right, well, if I do it this way, then God will be happy with me. If I do it this way, then I'll actually be able to stand up with a clear conscience. If I do it this way, then God will smile on me. If I do it this way and not that way, then God's blessings will come into my life now and I'll get the stuff that I want now. And we imagine if we live that way, that God's face when he looks at us is constantly filled with disappointment or frustration because we're never fully walking in the spirit. Because we know that we always have mixed motives. That there's always something underlying within us that's not pure. And we constantly feel the battle of chapter 7. That I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I can't break out. And this is a mistake we made at the very beginning. Throughout human history, this has been the reality that that even the first man and first woman added to the commands that God gave them, trying to hedge away from the one thing he had called them to. Legalism is attractive to every one of us because legalism allows us to get into the business of sin management. And it makes it so that we can use different moral standards that are outside of Scripture to say this is what a real Christian looks like and lives like, even though it's things that aren't recorded for us in God's Word. We can take obscure theological concepts and say, if you understand this or land here on this line and not on this line, then then you're acceptable and you'll be acceptable to God. And 
We do all kinds of ways, and ultimately what this does is it's ways for us to elevate ourselves to have a sense of security in our own morality or beliefs or theology so that we can be assured that those who sin differently than we do are lesser. But that's not the gospel. It's self-righteousness. The gospel is... Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so condemnation for who? That gets to our first point of under, of, under no condemnation today. There's no condemnation first for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a stunning and radical way to talk, and I don't think we understand how radical this is, particularly if you've been around the church for a while. You might hear this and say, well, yeah, in Christ. And <laughs> What does that mean? What does the language mean? What do we mean when we say that? What does Paul mean here? Because this gets to the core of what Christianity really is. And so for those of you who aren't Christians, this is something that I want you to pay attention here. Because you've heard all kinds of things about Christianity, but Christianity is not just a system of rules. It's not just a moral or ethical code. It's not just a fire insurance prayer that you say one time and put your hand up at a camp so that you don't go to hell. Christianity is not just social inclusion into a group that you want to be a part of because it feels good to have community, especially right now when we're all so isolated. It's, it's not just those things, and Christians need to hear this as well. That what Paul says here is incredible, and it's simple, and it's intense, and it's profound as a way to talk about what Christianity really is. And he's already touched on this. Back in chapter 6, he says of those who are in Christ, that we've been baptized into Christ Jesus. So this has already been talked about, that in chapter 6 he says, we were baptized, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so this concept is, that back in chapter 6, is our baptism unites us with Christ in his death and resurrection. And so we are in Christ in those moments that we are included in the redemption of all of humanity and the re restoration and renewal of all things and that, that the language is we are united with him in death and in resurrection so we put our flesh to death so we can be raised to life. This is the same thing Jesus called us to, his disciples to. In Luke 9 and Matthew 16 when he said, if anybody is going to come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. You've got to lose your life to find it. Because what benefit is it to, to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? And so to be a Christian isn't just to believe the right things about theology. Though beliefs in theology are important. It's not just a moral code to follow. Though we are called to holiness. It's certainly not just a worldview in a way, in a political perspective. Though we are called to be citizens of a kingdom of heaven. Christianity at its core is union with Jesus Christ, that he, God in the flesh, is our savior and we are united with him in his death and resurrection. That is what it means to be a Christian. And so when Paul says there's no condemnation, he says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
John Calvin said here, we should be satisfied with the benefits of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we are grafted into his body and made one with him by belief of the gospel, then we may assure ourselves that he is the fountain which never dries up, nor can ever become exhausted, and that in him we will have all variety of good things and all perfection. This is what it means to be a Christian. And so the question for us is, do you believe it? And really, do you believe that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ? Because if you do, it changes everything. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if you have got a hold of this idea, you will have discovered the most glorious truth you will ever know in your life. Most Christian people are miserable. Most Christian people fail and fall into sin because they are depressed and they allow the devil to depress them. Ah, they say, I have sinned so. How can I make these great statements? Have you never heard the word faith? This verse is the answer of faith to all our troubles. This is what God tells us about ourselves. He puts it in the absolute, complete, certain manner. So if you're a Christian, this is the good news we call the gospel. It's settled. You are no longer under sin and death, but given the spirit and life, there is no condemnation for you. And this is a matter of location. It's saying you are in Christ. You are now located. You have a different zip code. You've been moved. Now, research shows us, this is, there's incredible research that we could kind of get into that I'm not actually qualified to talk much about, um, about economics and the reality that zip codes shape your opportunity. That it, it's true, where you grow up is going to shape the opportunity you have in your life in, in incredible ways. And so what this is telling us is that, that if you are in Christ, if you have turned to him to be united with Jesus and you've shown that in your baptism, that, that this, your location has been changed, you've been given a new zip code. You've been moved from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness and sin, into the kingdom of light. And here's the problem is that, that we get caught up in the winter of sin and death and, and we have been brought into the light and warmth of God's kingdom, but we still want to keep our old clothes on. And so we still want to wear the heavy coat of our own failure and we, we think it's protecting us so that we can be self-deprecating even in our faith and with people around us, but we don't realize is that you're limiting your ability to feel the warmth of the sun and the, in the embrace of the Father and it's killing you. Let go of it. To continue to wallow in our own inability and our own morality is in a measure to disbelieve God and disbelieve his gospel, to deny the effectiveness of the cross, to say, oh, I know, I know, I know that it's by grace alone through faith alone. But you don't know what's happened to me. You don't know what I've done. And so we continue to carry the weight of our sin and refuse to allow it to be forgiven, and that doesn't honor God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. How are we supposed to enjoy God now and forever if we can't accept his love and forgiveness and actually have faith to believe that there's no condemnation left? As one pastor has said it, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. So rest. The call to us is simply believe 
that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Second, the next verse goes on to say that the Spirit has set us free. So in in chapter 8, verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's a lot of discussion. What does this mean? Law of the spirit of life, law of sin and death. What is, what is he getting at here? Is this like the law of Moses, the formal law, capital L law in scripture? Or it, I don't, and I don't think that quite fits with the context or with Romans chapter 7. Um, one commentator, Douglas Moo, I think captures it best. And he says that when Paul uses the word law here, he's talking about binding authority. He's talking about, about power. And so here, it's, it's that the, the power, the binding authority of the Spirit of God and of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the binding power of sin and death. And this fits with chapter 6, that you are either enslaved to sin or enslaved to righteousness in Christ. And so here, it's the Spirit of God alone, the Spirit of God, of the Spirit of life, who has set you free, emancipated us in Christ Jesus from the law, the power of sin and death. And this is all of what's been building out from Romans 5 to 7. So it's restating those chapters that we've covered most recently and and showing us again that the power of sin and the power of death, sin is a personified power that reigns and rules and controls and demands obedience. It has been obliterated in the cross and overcome in Christ, overwhelmed, and now the Spirit brings life where death once reigned. Ray Ortland says here, because of this, we don't need more frightening punishments and more withering scoldings. We need the all-sufficiency of Jesus applied in rich measure to our deepest points of personal need. And that is what the Holy Spirit does. He internalizes the triumphs of Christ crucified within the depths of the human being so that our inclinations start changing from evil to good. My guess today is that you didn't come here eager for more frightening punishments and withering scoldings. Unless you're terribly masochistic. My guess is that your own history and your own story will show you that more frightening punishments and more withering scoldings don't actually transform your heart. All they do is embitter you. You set your jaw and take it. Rest in this gift. In Christ, there is the spirit of life who frees you. So live in that freedom. You know, we have a tendency to treat the Christian life like we're on probation. Like we've been let out of the slammer. We don't want to go back in. But we've got to watch our behavior. We've got to check in by curfew. We've got to make sure that we don't get caught. Because if we do, we're scared. We're going to end up right back where it all started. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've got nothing to worry about. If this was based on your works and your morality, you wouldn't have gotten this far. 
Living under condemnation, though, is actually going to strengthen the, inf- in, 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 the involvement and influence of sin in your life. That includes self-condemnation. It doesn't help to be self-condemning. And I, this is something I struggle with. I struggle with my own cloud, dark clouds of melancholy, whether you want to call it melancholy or depression or whatever. There are dark days and gray days that I struggle with in my soul. And, and I, I, so I know this. I mean, this isn't to, to say, you know, you've got to figure this out. I'm, I'm with you. That, that it, but you've got to hear this. Hear this as, as hope and freedom, that if you are constantly belittling and condemning yourself, if you are constantly reciting your own failures over yourself and accusing yourself of those failures, then, then when you follow through on the actual sin, when you actually finally just give in and do the wrong thing, then it will feel like a release, even if just for a moment. It'll feel like finally you just admitted who you were and it feels good and you just get past it and that fulfillment of taking the wrong step and doing the wrong thing just proves everything you've been reciting over yourself right. It proves that you can't measure up. It proves that you're a failure. It proves that you're a sinner in some way will justify your perspective that you're never going to get it right and that you're unworthy of God's love. And then shame Guilt and fear and scrambling all set in. You make commitments to God. I'm never going to do that thing again. And that's living in the law of sin and death. You're still bound under the power of sin and death. You're still living out of slavery to sin and death. And so this isn't to say work harder to do better to live in life. It's saying You've been set free. Stop putting the shackles back on. Don't live under that power anymore. And even if you're struggling and having a miserable day, even in the, in the moments when you're not walking in the Spirit and you know it, that, that even in those moments you need to go back to Romans 8.1 and hear again, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because if you realize the grace and acceptance of, and love of God, it will change and transform your life forever. Going back to self-condemnation, you will never put enough rules in place or boundaries in place in your life to finally get it right and figure it out and not need Jesus anymore. And so I'm going to ask you, I know some of you get uncomfortable with this. I write and underline all kinds of things in my Bible, so I'm not uncomfortable with it. But I'm going to ask you, church, in your Bibles, to actually write your name into verse 1. If you're in Christ, you need to internalize this for you. That there is now no condemnation. For who? There is now no condemnation for Devin, who is in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation For Santos, who's in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for Nate, who's in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for Elisha, who's in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for Kyle, who's in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for Kiana, who's in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for Jess, who is in Christ Jesus. 
There's no condemnation for Al, who's in Christ Jesus, or for Chewy, who's in Christ Jesus. And I need to hear today that there's no... There's no condemnation for Bill, who's in Christ Jesus. So write your name. Your name's been written into the Lamb's Book of Life. You've got nothing to be afraid of. And so when depression comes knocking, when failure is spoken over you, when grief hits, when sorrow destroys you and crushes you, when, when your own inadequacy is shown and on display and that leads to shame and hurt and guilt and fear and you hit dark days, recite this over yourself and pray to ask God that he'll help you believe it. Third, and finally, there is no condemnation right now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Pastor Ray says here that God has done this. We did not, and it changes everything. It means that we are not holding on to Christ as much as he is holding on to us. Praise God. That's why, in chapter 7, Paul ends up by saying, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And immediately, he knows. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, because it is his work, not ours, that we rely on. We need to hear this because we forget this all the time. I forget this all the time. And we need to constantly be reminded and imagine how transformed your life will be if you constantly are reminded that you live in freedom from sin and death, that the spirit of life is in you, that there is no condemnation for you. And you don't have to live trying to measure up anymore, but you're just freed to live and to be and trust that you are accepted and loved by God. And we need to hear, if you're a Christian, this is your identity. It's for all those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not, you know, when you look back when you first became a Christian, you were on fire then, that that's when you were in Christ Jesus because you were walking in the Spirit. Again, this is why that, that extra line in the KJV is not just a, a wrong insertion into the text. It actually corrupts the gospel. It's not, this isn't eternity either. This isn't just saying, at some point, we know we're going to suffer through this place, and everything's going to burn, and I'm going to escape it all, and I'm going to end up in God's presence in heaven, and I'm going to float around on a cloud, and it'll be fine. Then I'll experience what it is to be in Christ and to be freed from sin. No. And this isn't just in five years, when you're a better Christian, whatever that means, and you have things figured out more, and your life's on track more, and you have a five... We're in D.C. I know some of you have five and ten-year plans for your spiritual life. Throw them away. (laughs) Right now, because this is telling you now, at this moment, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Jesus either is your Savior or he is not. His work is either sufficient for you or it is not. 
And he is the absolute Savior. So if you're in him, you can trust God's word that there's no condemnation for you. And the spirit of God breathes new life into you and has set you free from sin and death. And it's not from just in the future. It is now at this moment. This is the present reality. And so that is the humility. And it frees us to humility and courage because we can trust that we can actually have a perspective on ourselves of who we really are. Will you ever be sinless in this life? Never. You will forever feel the battle of Romans chapter 7. And you will forever feel, because as soon as you think you've, gone, you've gotten to the point where you're sinless, you've committed the sin of pride, and you're going to immediately hold up your own justification and righteousness and be right back to the drawing board. Sorry, but are you under the penalty and power of sin? No. Because there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Humility is understanding our place before God and before each other. And we need to hear this just briefly because there is a problem that I see in the church, in our church, in churches in our streams um, that, that we like to think that we, we lose this humility thinking that we're helping others and we become too often, there are too many idol hunters out there. Let me explain that. There are good popular books on idolatry that have been written. It's true. Tim Keller's little book, Counterfeit Gods, is fantastic. You can go read it. It's good. We talk about idolatry of the heart a lot as a, as a church because it's a major theme running through Scripture all the way through from start to finish that our hearts get caught up in affections placed elsewhere, and the heart is a factory of idols, as Luther said. And so, um, as, and so we know these things, and we talk about those things and trying to, to root out the idols of our hearts so that we can have right worship that's directed toward God that shapes our lives that way. All of that is good and true, but what happens when we turn that into, more, into our own morality and our standing before God rather than resting in Christ's finished work is we think that we not need, now need to help everyone else with their idols. And so we try to assess other people's motives. We try to figure out and try to, and if you ever found yourself telling somebody, I think you've got a real problem with an idol of comfort. Please stop. Just don't do it. Don't fall into the temptation. We don't even know our own hearts. I, I struggle to know my own motives. And I struggle to get to the bottom of my own idolatries and to be able to see it clearly. But to assess somebody else's heart and enter into that place, we are treading on precious and sacred ground that can bring, bring destruction or life to somebody's soul. And to start assessing their motives and idolatries puts us in a dangerous place. We might ask questions to try to understand someone's perspective better, or if invited by them, help them try to discern what's going on in their hearts. But we need to be very careful here. Because, again, do Christians sin? Yes. And we are called to help each other put sin to death. Yes, but, but be careful about presuming that you are the more spiritual one that Scripture calls to that task. And remember, as you approach brothers and sisters in Christ, that you need to speak Romans 8.1 over them. That's what God has called you to. To be able to say to a brother and sister in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. Because listen, when we speak accusations that pinpoint an identity for somebody else based on what we have decided is their sin and say this is who you are, 
Rather than speaking their identity in Christ over them. Do you understand what you're doing? And I've fallen into this, too. The Hebrew word for accuser is Satan. Let's not help him with his job. And let's not give him fodder to speak over a brother or sister in Christ for a lifetime that their identity is anything other than Christ alone. Instead, we can join the Spirit in his work in each other's lives, breathing life and courage and hope into each other. Yes, when you see clear sin that can be tied to a moment in time that you can observe externally and tie it to Scripture, chapter and verse, then yes, come alongside a brother and sister and try to help them. But be careful to breathe life and courage, knowing that each one of us is struggling and the answer to our sin is not greater morality, but the answer to our sin is a great Savior because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're freed in that to humility and to courage. Now listen, I doubt today that I am alone in the lasting echoes of condemnation that ring through the dark fissures of my own heart. The voices of those who've spoken an identity over me, reinforced by my own insecurities and fears and exacerbated by the whispers of our accuser. If you struggle with those dark valleys, cling to Romans 8. We might never outrun the shadows of those realities, the side of death, and that's why there's comfort in Romans 7. Seeing even in the Apostle Paul, he was fighting a battle. But thank God that we aren't left alone there. That we get to Romans 8 and we read this and we can cling to it and recite it over ourselves and allow the Spirit of God to impress it on our hearts and plead with God to help us believe it. So hear it again. There is no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Now go and walk in the freedom of the spirit of life. Believe God and don't add to the gospel and live in that freedom no longer under the bondage of your sin. You're freed to walk in humility and courage and then breathe this life. Be used as an instrument of God for healing in people's souls. Let's pray. Um, Father, we, this is too good for us to believe that it's true sometimes. I, it's, it's hard to outrun, and we might never outrun the sense of our own inadequacy, our sense of, condom, of being condemned. And so we need your help here. Would you send our, your spirit to help us believe what your word has shown us and told us today. I pray today that for those who are hearing your word and hearing your gospel, whatever they've represented themselves to be, whether they've represented themselves to be a Christian for a lifetime or, or as, as an antagonist to your word, that if your spirit is moving freshly in their hearts, that you would give them the courage to follow Jesus today. I pray that for all of us that are wrestling with our own inadequacy and our own failure and our own fear and our own doubts, 
that you would, you would bring comfort by your spirit today and that we would believe that we can insert our name into this verse that our, if we are in Christ, there is now, therefore now no condemnation for us. That you'd give us a taste of the beauty and comfort and freedom that that brings. And so we pray this and plead with you, Father, in the name of Christ. Amen.